This is Candlelight, a show where we talk to people involved in human rights across disciplines. I'm Carissa Bernard. Today, we are talking to the director of the Dodd Research Center. That's different, however, from a notion that the United States as a whole or as a nation or as a people is reluctant to sign on to human rights treaties. Don't go away. I'm Glenn Matoma, and I am an assistant professor of human rights and education with a joint appointment with the Yukon Human Rights Institute, as well as the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at the NEAG School of Education. And I'm also the director of the Thomas J. Dodd Research Center. And so professionally, my duties include both those of a typical tenure-track faculty, which is to say research and writing on the topics of human rights and education broadly understood. But then also as director of the Dodd Center, I am charged with outreach and engagement work in the field of human rights. And really, I understand that as a mandate to have an impact, to have an impact in Connecticut, to have an impact at UConn, to have an impact around the world, advancing human rights and international justice in some substantive way. Wow. That sounds like a very interesting job so far. It is. And uh, obviously, it's not easy. You know, having an impact in any field is a challenge, and having an impact that advances human rights is really really tough. And certainly I do that primarily through partnerships with people doing great work all over the state and all over the world. Is there a connection between your position as a director of the Dodd Center and as a professor? Absolutely. So I think I came to this work as director of the Dodd Center in large part because of my background as a scholar in human rights and the history of human rights and my understanding of the way in which the human rights system as a whole came into being after the Second World War. Uh, But it also came about because of my familiarity with the way in which institutions of higher education, such as the University of Connecticut, can play a role in advancing the goals of human rights around the world. And so I really see that part of an academic understanding of human rights involves a commitment to promoting the goals of human rights around the world. And so I see them as going together. My research feeds the practice of outreach and engagement that we do at the Dodd Center. And then what I do at the Dodd Center helps inspire new avenues of research. Uh, That's particularly true in the human rights education circle. So the the Dodd Center has a K-12 human rights education program where we're seeking to make Connecticut a national model for human rights education in our public schools. And that has really opened up a new field of research for me here at UConn as well as presented new opportunities to teach undergraduate and graduate classes in human rights education. Based on my research, you're currently working on a biography on Charles H. Malik, correct? Correct. What's the title of this brilliant biography? <laughs> <laughs> well, it remains to be seen how brilliant it is. In fact, you know, it's, it's one of the casualties of having a large administrative role in the university is that uh, sometimes those projects take a little longer than you would have hoped. So I've been working on it for quite a while. Nevertheless, the current working title is actually the subject of human rights, Charles H. Malik and the development of the 20th century human rights idea. And it's really based on a, an idea I had during 
the writing of my first book, which was on the development of the Universal Declaration. And, and Malik played a very large role in the development of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights at the UN in the 1940s and 1950s that Malik himself represented something really fascinating about human rights, which is to say, he represented to me the problem of how individuals come to understand themselves as people who have universal human rights. It's kind of common sense to us today, in some sense, that uh, human beings would have these inherent rights. But it's really a recent concept that all human beings everywhere, regardless of race, nationality, gender, any kind of identifying feature would have inherent core human rights. And Malik very early on understood himself as someone with human rights and understood that fact as implying everyone else had human rights as well. He himself came, uh, was, uh, was born and raised in Lebanon in a period before Lebanon was even a country. And I think his experiences there in a part of the world which we don't think of as one in which human rights has a strong kind of cultural footing is really fascinating and interesting to me. And so this is why I decided to kind of pursue this biography of him. Why in particular do you believe that we can learn something specific from this biography? Why do you believe that we can learn something from his life? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, part of it is there are two dimensions to really, at least two dimensions to any biography, right? On the one hand, biographies are often about exceptional people, people who are different, different in some significant way. And, and certainly Charles Malick was like that, right? I mean, he was someone who had a very uncommon life, was himself extraordinarily talented, dedicated, had a wide range of global friendships and connections and, you know, rose to positions of prominence, you know, wrote dozens of books, was an exceptional person in many regards. And so any biography often attempts to depict someone's exceptionalism in a way that is compelling and that we can connect with. On the other hand, all biographies also are about people. And we're all people as well. And so there's some dimension, I think, of his story that I'm hoping connects with all of us who do understand ourselves as individuals with human rights. And so, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a paradox going on here, I think, that, you know, on the one hand, I think people will read it because they want to gain insight into somebody who's very, very different from them. On the other hand, I, I would hope they would read it in part to see reflections of themselves in some sense, see reflections of their own experience in their own world in terms of their, in, their own internal attitudes about themselves, right? So this, this notion that, that, you are a, that you are a human being, and as a human being, you have certain inalienable rights. So moving more into your personal history, your education track took you from studying photography at the University of California, Santa Cruz, to cultural studies at Claremont Graduate University, to humanitarianism at UConn. What influenced your decision to go back to school? And was this always the plan? Or was there a specific event that was the deciding factor for you? Yeah, well, it certainly wasn't uh, always the plan. If it was a plan, I, I, uh, it's a really crazy plan, right? It doesn't seem particularly efficient or effective to have uh, chosen the track I did. And so maybe that, that tells you that I'm, I'm, I'm not particularly good at uh, planning out my own interests or uh, career ambitions. But 
but nevertheless, so I, I mean, I think so the decision to go back to school happened after I finished college at Santa Cruz in the mid 1990s. I had this degree in photography and I had a kind of passion for art in general and photography in particular. And uh, while I wasn't really, I didn't necessarily have the kind of entrepreneurial drive to become an independent artist in, uh, in photography, I wanted to work in the creative field generally. And I moved up to Seattle and I took a job at a stock photography agency. And I don't know if you know anything about stock photography, but nevertheless, I, I didn't, I was not gratified by my experience uh, in the stock photography uh, field and really began to think about, you know, what else interested me, what else was there in the world that, that really compelled me. And I really felt strongly that my time in school, particularly when I was doing academic research and writing, was also gratifying to me, surprisingly enough, as someone who had mostly thought of themselves as an artist. And so I began to research interdisciplinary graduate programs. And from the very beginning, I was committed to the idea that, you know, one disciplinary focus was too narrow to getting at the things that I was really interested and concerned about. So I, I looked around for programs, mostly that would allow me to plan my own course of study, almost like the kind of individualized major program here, right? You know, you I'm probably someone who kind of bucks at having constraints put on them in, in, in some sense. So I, you know, I look for programs that would allow me to just kind of select from a menu of different options and put together the kinds of educational experiences I was after. And so the cultural studies program at Claremont Graduate University was incredibly small. It was embedded within a, uh, you know, itself a very small graduate institution. And they had very few <laughs> programmatic requirements, which I liked. So uh, I opted into cultural studies, took the two required courses, and then spent re the rest of my PhD academic career selecting from different kinds of courses that, that essentially I responded to, that I was interested in. And over the course of that graduate career, really came to focus on what I took to be one of the most compelling intellectual and political questions of, and this was back in the early 2000s, of, of the time, which is to say the, the cultural legitimacy of human rights, right? Human rights presents itself as a, as a kind of universal, ethical, moral, and political framework for all times and all places and all people, and that cuts against the notion of cultural diversity to, to, to some extent and, and multiculturalism. And so I was really kind of confounded by this problem of how you established a multicultural legitimacy for human rights. And that led me into history, oddly enough, to understanding the origins of the human rights regime at the UN as we, as we currently know it. And thus I wrote my dissertation on the development of the human rights regime, and that, was, uh, that resulted in my first book. I came here to the University of Connecticut in 2008 as a postdoctoral fellow with what was then called the Foundations of Humanitarianism program and is today known as the Research Program in Humanitarianism. And at the time, it was a joint program of the Humanities Institute and the Human Rights Institute. 
And what I really responded to in that position was the idea that it didn't sit in any academic department, right? It wasn't like many human rights programs in a law school or just part of a department of political science, but really was deliberate in not only being interdisciplinary, but also engaging the humanities. So history, literature, the arts, all of these things that, you know, as you maybe noticed from my biography, I had, I, you know, I had engaged in early on in my life, I wanted to sustain that, uh, that connection with. So, so that's what led me ultimately to that position. What do you think makes the UConn program particularly special in comparison to other schools that may do something similar in terms of their humanitarianism program? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's hard to say definitively, you know, I don't want to pass judgment on all of the programs. There are great programs out there. But I will say, you know, I I came here as a postdoctoral fellow, which is typically a very short term uh, appointment and one in which you you kind of come in and you do a year or two and then you go out to an appointment in another university. And, And what I found here was really a community of individuals, both scholars, students, as well as staff, in fact, who are really committed to an open interdisciplinary exchange. Not only that kind of advances our understanding of human rights, but it is also dedicated to the kinds of programs and efforts that, that have an impact, right? This brings me back to that kind of first comment I made about my role at the Dodd Center. And I really found that to be unlike other academic environments I had been in. I think in the academic world, we tend to get very narrowly focused on our areas of specialization, right? It's a closed world. All of graduate training kind of hones you to a very, very fine point. And that fine point can be narrow and precise. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, you're advan- you, ha- you have to be sharp. In, in order to advance knowledge uh, in that way, but that it can also lead to a narrowing and an isolation and a, and a kind of siloing of academic fields. And what I liked here were that people were open to learning from each other across disciplinary boundaries, which doesn't happen everywhere and I think is unique here. And then the other thing I noted already was that a privileged place was given to the humanities in this study of human rights. I think oftentimes in most cases, in most universities, their human rights program is dominated by the law school and by, by lawyers. And I love lawyers. I have many friends who are lawyers, which is terrific. But, uh, but I would say that's, that's one perspective on, on a field that needs a broad interdisciplinary engagement. With regard to humanitarianism in particular, I would say those programs are often situated in professional schools of international service. And again, while there are wonderful schools of international service, uh, those two are narrow and don't offer the kind of critical perspective on humanitarianism, a critical perspective informed by the humanities that the University of Connecticut offers. What can you tell us about your first book, Human Rights and the Negotiation of American Power, that won't give away too much. <laughs> well, uh, it's not a mystery, so uh, you know, I'm not too concerned about spoilers. But 
as I said earlier, right, this book grows out of my dissertation research, and it really focuses on the origins of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which has been studied in a number of contexts. But what I think this book brings uh, to that conversation that is not apparent in others is the inclusion of Charles Malik, Carlos Romulo, um, as, a we- as well as American civil society organizations like the NAACP the American Bar Association and the Committee to Study the Organization of the Peace as primary actors in the development of the UN's human rights program. What do you feel was missing in other human rights books that inspired you to put certain aspects into your book? Sure. Well, I think that the story of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, as well as the kind of early UN human rights program, had tended to focus on the role of the United States. And by the role of the United States, mostly they meant the role of Franklin Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt, who were very, very prominent proponents of human rights at the time. So Franklin Roosevelt's For Freedom speech in January of 1941, in which he declared freedom of speech freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear as the four freedoms of human rights uh, that were valid the world over certainly helped set the tone for the debate over human rights during the Second World War and after. And then Eleanor Roosevelt, because of her role as chair of the UN Commission on Human Rights during the drafting of the Universal Declaration, has received a tremendous amount of attention. And, and that, tr- that attention is legitimate. They certainly played important roles. But I felt like there was an untold story there of the way in which non-U.S. actors or non-official U.S. actors influenced the debate in the direction of the development of the U.N. Human Rights Program. Do you feel there's any aspects of your book that are currently outdated? Do you think you'll do an updated version in the future? What say you? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I guess I don't see myself doing an updated second edition, again, as a kind of historical book. You know, we, we enjoy the luxury of history not changing. You know, it, it's still legitimate. I mean, there may be other historical questions to ask, and there certainly will be new historical evidence that comes to the fore that changes our understanding of that past, but it's not like it was focused on a contemporary situation that has changed. I will say, you know, in terms of the framing of the book, the, the kind of initial framing on the front in the, in the introductory chapter and the, the conclusion certainly makes reference to the kind of Bush administration attitudes toward human rights. And that administration has receded into the history books itself. And so uh, certainly if I was writing it today, the context would be different and I would, I would frame it differently. So moving on to another project that you were involved in, you helped co-edit a special edition of the Journal of Human Rights. When it came to co-editing, what made certain articles stand out to you? Well, I think, you know, in our... Um, in our efforts, so I, I edited it with uh, Carrie Bystrom, who used to be on the faculty here at the University of Connecticut in the English department and was one of my colleagues at the Human Rights Institute and in the humanitarianism program and is now in Berlin as a part of the Bard College, European College of Liberal Arts. But she and I were really dedicated to 
editing a special issue of the Journal of Human Rights on humanitarianism and responsibility that, and I'm going to start sounding like a broken record here, but that was interdisciplinary. So we really looked for contributions that added different perspectives on the conversation about humanitarianism and humanitarianism and responsibility uh, that was current at the time. And over the past 20 years, there has been a really robust conversation driven in large part by a, a report that was issued in 2001 uh, called The Responsibility to Protect, uh, which has really shaped uh, much of the thinking around humanitarian intervention over the past 15 years. And there was a lot of discussion, again, by lawyers, by international studies uh, scholars, by political scientists about this notion of the responsibility to protect and humanitarianism. And so we were really interested in widening the conversation and bringing in literary scholars, be bringing in scholars of film, bringing in historians, and bringing in political scientists and lawyers and others to think about what the relationship between responsibility and humanitarianism was. So as we evaluated those contributions, we really looked for a diversity of perspective. This is Candlelight, the show exploring human rights across disciplines. I'm Carissa Bernard, and I'm talking with UConn's professor, Glenn Mitoma, of the Dodd Center. So let's get into the deeper stuff. According to a 2013 New Statesman article by Sophie McBain, one of the biggest fears behind the U.S.'s reluctance to sign human rights treaties is that they will infringe upon the U.S.'s sovereignty. How would you respond based on your knowledge of the field? Well, I think that's true. I, you know, I think that the uh, American government's reluctance to sign on to international human rights treaties is precisely because it recognizes that those treaties will constrain its ability to act as it sees fit, right? And so certainly the U.S. government feels that the less it's bound by international law, the better, right? It preserves its field of autonomy. That's different, however, from a notion that the United States as a whole or as a nation or as a people is reluctant to sign on to human rights treaties. I don't know that, well, I don't know, A, that the American public in general is very much aware of what human rights treaties are out there and the ones that they do know and when they are polled and asked about things like the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the majority of the American people would support the U.S. joining these international treaties. So when we say things like the U.S. doesn't want to sign on to treaties, we have to be precise about what we mean. And, and generally what we mean is the U.S. government doesn't. And even within that, we have to be um, even more precise because the executive, particularly under democratic governments, have been very eager to sign on to international treaties. And, and in fact, we have signed most of them. We have not ratified them, however. And so that is the job of our legislative branch, in particular our Senate. And the 
the Senate has shown a deep reluctance to do so for a variety of reasons, some of which have to do with national sovereignty, others have to do with their response to domestic constituencies and uh, advocates who pressure them not to sign. What is the difference between signing them and ratifying them in terms of the effects that these documents could have on our society? Sure. So under our system, and and different governments have different systems for how they become a party to international legal instruments. Under our system, it is the job of the executive branch to negotiate and then sign international treaties, right? So that's the president or the secretary of state if they delegates the authority to that person. But in order for the United States to become officially a party to an international legal instrument and for that international legal instrument to become law for the United States, you need the advice and consent of the United States Senate. And that means a vote for ratification uh, by a two-thirds majority of the U.S. Senate. And at that point, it then becomes law for the United States. Now, you can get quite technical with this, and I'm not, again, <laughs> I'm not a lawyer, but uh, you know, according to my understanding, right, that there is even a difference within international law about human rights treaties in particular. So human rights treaties are what they call non-self-executing. So even if we do sign and we do ratify an international human rights treaty, it doesn't automatically become domestic law. There has to be enabling legislation at the domestic level, both at the federal and state level, in order for it to become law within the United States. So, for instance, if we ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the provisions of that convention would not immediately become law. So you wouldn't be able to go to the Supreme Court and sue for a violation of that treaty until it's effectively given implementation legislation within the United States. That actually leads into my next question. Eric Posner, who wrote an article in 2012 for Slate.com argues that the human rights treaties have minimal, if any, impact on human rights and do not affect the worst offenders. Is that perspective accurate? And where is it misguided? Yeah, I mean, this is, a, this is an incredibly hot debate within the human rights community is, what is, is understanding exactly what the impact of international human rights legal norms are. And to the extent that, you know, the most abusive regimes, whether that have be regimes like Syria, China, Saudi Arabia, others, are a party to a number of international human rights conventions, it does not and, and states like the United States which are not among the most egregious human rights abusers in the world. I think you, you have a hard time making that a case. Yet we are not party to a number of these international human rights legal instruments. On the face of that, it would appear that it's hard to argue that there's a direct correlation between signing and ratifying international human rights law and an improvement of human rights conditions on the ground. In fact, it's much more complicated than that, right? That in, in large part, What international human rights laws do is similar to what domestic laws do. Just because we've outlawed murder doesn't mean you immediately see an end to murder, right? It provides both 
a moral function, which is to say, establishes our social disapproval of whatever the act that's being outlawed is. So international human rights laws exist in part to express the overall ethical position of the international community, and it provides a mechanism to address those abuses, so to hold people accountable. So the function of international human rights law is both to establish a norm of behavior and then to begin to develop mechanisms to address those violations. The first part is, is, is somewhat strong. We have a very kind of robust structure of, of norms. The structure to address violations is very weak and is definitely a work in progress. And so where I see Posner's comments really pointing us is toward this question of the weakness of the international human rights implementation system. Based on the current state of the United States, is there any evidence or indications that we will adopt documents like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or other human rights treaties in the near future through the actual ratification process? Or is there evidence to suggest otherwise? Well, so first of all, uh, just a point of clarification, right? The UDHR, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, is not an international human rights treaty. It's a declaration by the United Nations that was adopted in 1948 without a dissenting vote and with the very robust support of the United States. So it's not something we can sign on to or sign off of nor is it something that is legally actionable. It is a declaration by the General Assembly, which is to say it states the view, the considered view of the United Nations as an organization. And certainly its members, the members who make up the United Nations, to the extent they are members in good standing, all are expected to uphold the principles elaborated in General Assembly declarations of that kind. So in that sense, the U.S., has and continues to support the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The other part of your question, which I think is the kind of more interesting and difficult part, is this question about what are the prospects for the United States ratifying more international human rights instruments. And we're a party to a few, like the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights or the Convention Against Torture. But we're also not a party to many, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, and most famously, of course, the, the Convention on the Rights of Children, or the CRC, which is the most universally ratified treaty in history. It is ratified by every other member of the United Nations except for the United States. So we, uh, up until last year, I used to tell my classes we were one of two countries that had not ratified, right? The United States and Somalia were the only two countries that had not ratified. And I usually gave Somalia the excuse of the fact that they're a failed state without much of a government in place to do any kind of ratification. But over the past several years, a government of some sort has been functioning, and among the things they've managed to accomplish is a ratification of the, the CRC, which leaves the United States in a very awkward position of being the only country in the world not to have ratified the CRC. 
And so this would seem to suggest maybe there's a prospect here, right? I mean, is the United States willing to be that only outlying country on a universally ratified treaty like the CRC? And in my moments of optimism, I think that there's really an opportunity there to advance something that seems so uncontroversial that every other country could adopt it. But certainly in the current political atmosphere, I think it's it would be foolish to make predictions. I don't think we have any idea what's going to happen in the current presidential election. On the one hand, certainly Donald Trump's, while I'm not aware of any of, his, of any explicit statements by him with regard to international human rights law, I don't think it takes much imagination to guess what his position is, which is to say against all of them, even against the ones that we have ratified. I mean, his position that we should be torturing more. Going back just one second, right, so I gave you the kind of pessimistic statement about the the kind of current uh, political climate and Donald Trump and what that means. Again, in my in my lighter moments, I like to imagine there is a possibility that the current political situation will result in a more positive prospect for international human rights with regard to U.S. domestic politics. And that's the scenario that the Donald Trump candidacy is so terrible that it actually creates a wave of democratic that it actually that there's a there's a very strong electoral response in which the democrats achieve a large majority in the senate and that this large majority proves to be much more responsive to the idea of ratifying international human rights conventions so A wave of anti-Trump voting in the fall brings to power a large majority of senators who are actually in favor of ratifying things like the CRC and a Hillary Clinton presidency puts those forward. You know, she has in her own past been a strong advocate for human rights, particularly the human rights of women. Her famous 1995 Beijing speech in which she declared human right, women's rights were human rights, suggests the possibility that she could be a strong advocate for things like the Convention Against All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. And I would love to see a Hillary Clinton White House put forward CEDAW, which is the acronym for the Convention Against Discrimination Against Women, for ratification by the Senate. Are there any other points that you think are important in looking at this topic in particular? Well, actually, the last point I'll make on this is a recognition that the most important element for the promotion of human rights, both in the United States and around the world, actually doesn't have as much to do with the ratification of international human rights law as it does with individuals coming to understand themselves as having human rights and having human rights because they're human like everyone else. And this gets us back to the biography I'm writing on Charles Malik and also gets me back to my work in human rights education, which is to say one of the ways in which the U.S. becomes a better human rights citizen in the world is by a broader awareness and understanding of the stakes of human rights by all of us, by all of us as Americans. And so my work at the Dodd Center, my work in the School of Education to promote human rights education at the level of K through 12, as well as at the university, is aimed at building a broad popular understanding of human rights. 
rather than trying to get a top-down approach, which sees President Trump or President Clinton signing more human rights treaties and the Senate ratifying them. Let's make human rights real on the ground for individuals in their everyday communities. Candlelight is a production of WHUS Radio at the University of Connecticut. It is produced by me, Carissa Bernard, with help from Charlie Smart. Special thanks goes to Professor Glenn Mitoma. Music for this episode is produced by Nylor. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at candlelightpodcast at gmail.com. If you like this podcast, you can rate it and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Candlelight.